From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Hi, and welcome to another John Hannam Meets archive. During my long career, during which I've interviewed 5,000 people. Sometimes I really got quite excited when I came face to face with one of my own particular favourite actors. This happened numerous times and I can remember still vividly the day in 2006 when I got the train to Salisbury to come face to face with Annamassey. So it's back to 2006. John Hannam Meets from the Archive. My guest is uh, the very wonderful Anna Massey. Anna, welcome to John Hannam Meets. Hello. The reason I'm chatting to you is you've got this lovely new book called uh, Telling Some Tales, published by Hutchinson. And it's, uh, I've recently finished it, Anna, and it's a fascinating read. Well, I'm very you enjoyed writing. I loved writing. It, I'm sure the you fact did. Fact that people like reading it is is <laughs> even better, and quite a surprise because you write these things privately, and some days you write and you think, "Oh, this is quite interesting," and another day you think, "Nobody is going to want to read this at all," but you still have to press on. So it's very nice when somebody's read the whole book. <laughs> <laughs> you had a remarkable childhood in in some ways because your father Raymond Massey, who my older listeners will remember with great affection is Dr. Gillespie from Dr. Kildare, of course. But yes. um, sort of dad left home fairly early in your life, really, dad, didn't dad he? Dad left home when I was one. But, mm. you know, it, is, it does really pull one up with a start when you say Raymond Massey and people have not even heard of him. I mean, not that he was a legend or a world-famous person, but he was quite a well-known actor. Mm. Mm. But, you know, fame doesn't last very long, does it? It does pull one down to, to earth quite quite strongly makes one realise that each day is important. <laughs> when you saw him in Fourth Parallel when you were about four, I think... Well, do you know something? Yes. Somebody wrote me a letter yesterday, a fan letter. I don't know if it was a fan letter even. But he said, um, when I was about four, I went to the cinema and I don't know why I was taken because it was in the wall, but Nanny took us in Wales. We were in staying near Penny Bont in Wales and Nanny took us to the cinema and when my father was about to be hanged, my father was in the film, I got up on my seat and said, that man is our father, and immediately was rushed from the cinema. Now, I put in the book that the film was 49th Parallel because I believed, having been told by the family, that that was what I saw. Yes. But according to this gentleman who wrote me yesterday, I saw Santa Fe Trail. <laughs> so if my book is reprinted, should any of you buy it, and enough people buy it, and it is reprinted, I'm going to have to change that. <laughs> and put in Santa Fe Trail, where apparently he was hanged. Right. It was certainly Nanny Burbage, wasn't it? It was Nanny Burbage. Yes. Me. Yes, dear Nanny she had Burbage. Great effect on you, didn't she, really? Well, she was sort of like my mother and my father and my nanny and my granny, and she was, everybody rolled into one, and I relied on her for absolutely everything. Because my, my father, as we say, had gone to America, and my mother was frequently giving parties or in some show or away. I mean, she was she was did her very best. I'm not I'm not in any way criticising her, but in those days, parents sort of you were there when when 
when they wanted you, but mm. you weren't wanted all the time. <laughs> and it was rather nice that Nanny did want me all the time, or was there if I wanted her all the time. So. I can't believe you had a bit of a fiery temper, is that right? Or? Terrible temper. Really? Yes. I was. I, my mother gave me a Red Cross nurse dressing up outfit and called me her Cross Red nurse. <laughs> I was a terrible, terrible temper. Boarding but it goes quickly, I, does I, it? my temper. I flare up. Right. And then flare down. <laughs> Boarding school, was that a shock for you? Terrible shock. Didn't mm. stay very long. And he stayed three months, spent most of the time writing letters to my mother to explain that it was doing me no good at all. I hated it. I, I've always... I mean, my home is terribly important to me. I'm perfectly happy to be here in the West Country today, but I'm very, very happy to be going home on Sunday. <laughs> I, I love home. Yeah, whenever I see movies of children going to boarding school or whatever I always feel sorry for them I don't know why but yes. I always do do you totally and I unfortunately I did the most terrible thing because I was a single mother my first marriage ended rather early and I sent my son to boarding school because I thought I'm an actress I'm not going to be at home every night I don't want to send him you know go to the theatre and think of him alone in the nursery with some not nanny because by then my nanny had died she did look after David but uh, by then she had died and I just thought you know it's important for him to have friends around him all the time so I did send him to boarding school but the days that he went off and the days before he went he so didn't want to go and this little crying face and oh I think it's terrible I think they should be banned frankly although there are children who love them mm. but, oh, I, I, I feel terrible even thinking of it when you were at school you must have had uh, so many girls envious of you because you knew Dirk Bogard didn't you I did know Dirk Bogard and he <laughs> had to send me a photograph yes to cheer me up uh, and it was with his horse to Darling Anna. So I, for, for about ten minutes, I was frightfully popular. But then I, I you know, I, I just found everybody. We were all meant to speak French, so of course we spoke, you know, mixture of French and English. If we didn't know the word, we just put it in an English word. We didn't learn any French at all. I have to say, learned far more at an English school with a French teacher. <laughs> and I don't know. I just, I just found it just alienating and and. Um, I wasn't ready for it, you know. That you, you've got to be very confident at a boarding school, and I hadn't been given that sort of confidence. Ivor Novello, he was a, a house guest, wasn't he? He was a house guest yeah. all the time, and we often used to go and stay with him in Englefield Green, where he had a, a, a walled garden and a tiny swimming pool, and if there was so much as an inch of sunshine, he'd pop out in his rather scanty bathing costume because he was a sun worshipper. absolutely adored it. But he was a very, very dear man. He was very, very kind to me and uh, he was gentle and and um i was very very fond of ivor very very fond of him one of those sort of names that has lived on because only quite recently they had the ivor novello awards and lots of sort of current pop people win and the theater has been named after him of i course, think the strand yeah. is now yes. the novello theater for musicals isn't it it's been so uh yes he's still remembered isn't mm. he Mm. He really is a, a, a sort of immortal in, mm. in, in many ways. Mm. Mm. Danny Kaye too. You met, well, on a plane met you met Danny. Danny Kaye in yeah. weird circumstances, yes. We were on one of those um, Howard Hawks constellations and we got to Shannon and we were about to land. You had to keep stopping, you know, you went to Gander and then you did the hop over the Atlantic and then you landed at Shannon and then you did the London bit. But when we got to Shannon, the, apparently the light on the dashboard said the undercarriage isn't down. So we circled round, jettisoned tons of fuel and we saw ambulances and fire engines and everything on the ground and then we did this 
dive to try and lock it into place. So everybody was frightfully ill after that. And while we were doing this, Danny Kay, for some unknown reason, was walking up and down the aisle trying to tell everyone jokes. Well, I was busy being sick, and most other people <laughs> were busy, you know, saying their last rites and have their, have, you know, counting their beads and things. So it was a very, it was a very, very odd. Anyway, we landed perfectly okay. We did a crash landing, but. Uh, the undercarriage was in place all the time because it was just a fuse, something was wrong on the dashboard. Anyway, it was quite, um, it was quite an experience. And of course, years ago in the 50s, 60s, probably just into the 70s, people came out, Debs came out, didn't they? You came out in about 55. 55 yes. yes, and then I played in the Reluctant Debutante. Yes. So it was, it was a, a, a heady year, but it was also a very fiery baptism. Too fiery for me. Because, you know, I'd never gone on stage before and I got this part auditioning and, and uh, I just went, I went blindly on and, of course, it got more and more nervous. I got more and more nervous and uh, it was a strain, you know. I had wonderful reviews and then you've got to live up to them. A star is born, oh, they know, said. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes the star <laughs> was pretty, pretty, pretty frightened. There may be people listening to this that, that have sort of had a lack of confidence in life. And I know for a while, particularly in the early days, you did, Anna, didn't you, really? Yes, I de I've never brimmed with confidence. I brim with it a bit more now because my, my present husband's given me confidence. And, it, and uh, he, he was also one of the main editors of my book. I had Paul Seide, who, of course, was my chief editor. But I had Uri, who heard every single word before I sent it to Hutchison. So uh, I've got more confidence now because I think if you have somebody who is there with you and you're there for them, that gives an equal relationship, does give confidence. But I, I didn't have any at the beginning, no, I didn't. I didn't. I think, you know, to have... I see my grandchildren who are being superbly brought up by my son and daughter-in-law, and I see them being given confidence because they're being given attention all the time. And if they do something like Dan, who's three and a half, he pulled out some old boxes from a outhouse in the garden and... You know, David said, oh, don't do that, Dan. But he went on doing it, and suddenly these boxes became a fire engine, and he was off putting out <laughs> fires and things. And I just thought, you know, that is inventive and non-admonishing, and it's, it just stops there being tension in, in people's lives, and that, I think, I didn't have that. But that, I'm not blaming anybody for that, because I think in 1955 we weren't so aware of no. what we are aware of now. John Hannam, host of British Radio's longest-running non-stop chat show. This is your life. Currently I'm in Salisbury with the wonderful actress Anna Massey, who's got a new book called Telling Some Tales, and it's highly recommended. Uh, I couldn't put it down, really. Oh, thank you. You went to the States too, didn't you, early Went on. to quite a lot, because funnily enough, my mother and father divorced when I was about a year old, and they both married again. And their present husbands and wives had once been married to each other, so it was a sort of private lives in real life. And uh, I spent a lot of time in, in America because my stepfather was an American mm. lawyer, and he ran a firm, which sometimes he was in England, sometimes in New York, so we'd spend, oh, nine months or a year at a time in, in America. But the main home was England, in fact. Really. I know when you went early on, probably with uh, Reluctant Debutante, was it? Did you go? That was my first job yeah, that I went with. Yeah. Well, that's the only time I've worked in America, to be absolutely honest. But you I danced never, no. with somebody really famous, didn't you? I danced with John wow. F. Kennedy <laughs> at the El Morocco <laughs> nightclub. And I trod on his foot and would have ruined the whole thing, except his charm is, was, you know, <laughs> phenomenal charm. And she had phenomenal charm. I mean, they were a regal pair. And he was only a senator then. He wasn't president. 
because otherwise we'd have been surrounded by security men. No, he was just a, he was a great friend of William Douglas Hume who wrote The Reluctant Debutante and he had arranged this evening. But he, he really did charm his way through. And you were also in a room with the world's most famous actress of that time, obviously Marilyn Monroe. No, it wasn't a room. I met her in a garden. Did you? She came over to England to do Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier mm. and he gave a party in some house, I don't know where it was, outside London anyway, about sort of 20 minutes outside London, and she just married Arthur Miller, and Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe and Sybil Thorndike were in a pagoda. Marilyn Monroe was dressed in her Prince and Showgirl dress, which was this figure-hugging, cream-sequined, phenomenal dress, and um, Sybil Thorndike was dressed as a Ruritanian empress or whatever her role was in the film. Anyway, you felt that you should curtsy to them, but there they were as actors. But it seemed odd because they hadn't even started filming and yet they were wearing their costumes. And it, I, I don't know if I said anything or they said anything to us, but it was a, an evening that I'll never, ever forget. I mean, her beauty. Just, you know, the camera doesn't always love beautiful women. I mean, the camera loved her and you knew she was beautiful. But sometimes when you see those very beautiful people in real life, they're not so beautiful. But she was phenomenal with this mm -hmm. opaque skin. Just incredible. And you could see, you know, they were so in love, this great American intellect and this fabulous film star. It was, it was magic. You did early films like Gideon's Day, I know, mm. didn't you? John and Ford, who was my yes, godfather. Yeah. Mm. Was Jack, Jack Hawkins in that? I'm sure he was, yes, wasn't he? Yes, played by father. Yes, yes. yes. Directed by John Ford. And uh, Peeping Tom was an early one for you, wasn't it? That's right. Yes, but Peeping Tom was quite early. Yes, 1960. On the Isle of Wight, we have a lady who, in the 50s and 60s, was a famous model from London called Pamela Green, who was quite well-known. And she actually, she was one of the bodies... <laughs> Oh, really? She was, yeah. Really? Peeping Tom? Yes. So it was a good film, though, wasn't oh, yes. it? Yes. It's been reprinted, and uh, I went to see it. It's really well acted. Mm. I don't, I'm not talking about myself, but it's really, it's not dated in any way. He knew exactly what he wanted, Mr. Powell. You know, he was quite exacting mm. as a director. There's some nice humour in your book, particularly in the Miracle Worker, when you, <laughs> you lost one or two things one night, yes, didn't you? Yes, I went on. There was a fight in the Miracle Worker, as you know, when Annie Sullivan teaches at Helen Keller, and she's absolutely determined to make her sit at the table and finish her dinner or lunch or whatever. And we have this terrific fight, which is the climax of Act One. And uh, one night, I don't, I'm not sure if it was in that scene even, or maybe it was just after the fight, but my petticoat... All my petticoats and all my bloomers and everything had come undone. And they just fell down around my ankles and I just got out of them, just stepped out of them and went on. And nobody said anything afterwards. But I thought was so funny. They didn't come around and say, wow, what happened to your underwear? They just, I think they just thought it was part of the... part of the. Well, it could have happened in real life, couldn't it? Yes. And I reacted as though it had happened in real life and therefore people accepted. Happy memories of uh, School for Scandal. John Gilgood, I think, directed that one, didn't he? Yes, happy-ish memories. I, mm. I found it very difficult, that part. I, I was going through a very bad time in my life and my brother was in it and he was being a bit odd, not talking to me all the time. So it was a bit odd. And, but I, I absolutely adored working with, with... John Gilgood I worshipped, but as a director he was, I think, quite difficult because he changed his mind all the time. So he'd say, Anna, what are you doing taking off your white gloves? And you'd say, well, John, you told me to do that. I will keep them on. <laughs> so you wouldn't know where you were. It was sort of, I got confused with John Gilgood. Um, but although I acted with him many times later and I d doted on him as a person, I think he was one of the most 
endearing, perfect gentleman that I've ever met. But to work with 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 uh, Ralph Richardson was, was mm. wonderful. Really, I mean, he he gave me lessons once. I had to go and and have tea in the interval, and he had this wonderful 18th century dressing room in the uh, Theatre Royal Haymarket, and I, and I went and his dresser had made, you know, tea in a silver pot and chocolate cake, and I st- and a roaring fire in those days, they had a roaring fire in the dressing room, and I, he, he wanted to rehearse something, and there I found myself in the interval sitting on Ralph's knee while he rehearsed this scene, and I thought, you know, this is actually probably what happened in this dressing room in the 18th century. Mm. Probably some actress did sit on some actor's knee <laughs> in this very situation. I know you'd met a lot of famous people and worked with a lot of sort of legends, mm. but when you actually worked with Richard Burton, was that a bit special, really? Well, it was, he, was, he was deeply in love with yes. Burton. He just met Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> and um, they were very, very deeply in love. And also, he hadn't worked in the theatre for some time. So he got there in the morning and he was very worried about his voice. We were recording um, Henry V and I was playing Catherine, you know, the little French queen. Anyway, uh, he, by the time we got to lunch, his voice had warmed up and with this wonderful Welsh, you know, I mean, you could listen to it forever, couldn't you, his voice? Mm. And she arrived at tea, dressed rather oddly. She was in a... Her hair was up. Again, she had luminous skin like Marilyn Monroe. She had phenomenal skin, I noticed. And her hair was all done up with, with diamante... Uh, pins in her hair and she was wearing a, a a black cape tipped with ermine over a blue I don't know if it was satin or silk dress but it seemed rather odd gear for 3.30 in the afternoon and she, she'd broken a limb or something do you think I can tell this story? Go on then She'd broken a limb and uh, she had this, this sort of um, you know stick that she was limping on and she sat down and they gazed at each other I, I mean, no Romeo or Juliet could ever have gazed at each other so long or so deep. And I thought, you know, this is going on so long, somebody must speak. And I said to Elizabeth Taylor, I love your crutch, meaning the stick that she was holding. Well, of course, there was total silence. Nobody laughed. I mean, they just looked at me as though I'd come out of the zoo. But anyway, they were very, very much in love. So... They had some happiness. <laughs> You're listening to Isle of Wight Radio, and don't miss John Hannah Mates, because you like it. Not a lot, but you like it. Frenzy. Recently watched that film again, and uh, I really enjoyed it. You enjoyed the experience, I think, didn't you? I did. I, it was a wonderful chance for me to get out of playing upper-class parts. You know, I suddenly was asked to play a Cockney barmaid. Yes. Everybody said, why are you doing that? <laughs> well, Hitchcock cast me is the answer. <laughs> I went out for a secretary and got the barmaid. And I know it was riveting. All this thing about him directing actors like Cattle's rubbish. He, he was ironic. You know, an example of that is Alec McCowan said to him after rehearsing a scene, he went up and he said, Mr Hitchcock, is that all right? And he said, well, it's not the way I play it. <laughs> Proceeded then to tell him how that would be. So, you know, he was, he was full of irony, but he was really warm and asked me to go and watch Rush is. And I didn't watch my own. He understood that completely. We got in the Rolls Royce, which was you know, bigger than the distance, practically, than we went from the... Because he was very frail at the time. He'd, he'd had a very bad fall before he came over. So he, he had to go everywhere by car. So we went from the studio to the cutting room floor at two turns of the Rolls-Royce wheel, and we were out watching the, the rushes. But he, he wanted you to be part of the journey. He was, a, he, was a, um, he was an enhancer of life. I loved him, loved him. And he had a wonderful relationship with Alma, who just had a stroke, and she came down to the set and was charming. They were a, a, a you know pint-sized pair, but powerful as 
as all get out. If I sort of started to loosen my tie and said, uh, I don't know whether you know this, Anna, but uh, you're my kind of woman. I would, I would say, please, Barry Foster, don't say that again. <laughs> Poor Barry, not no longer with us. No, sad, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. But it was just a, 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 a typical Hitchcock film, really, because there were so many twists, weren't there? Do you know, when I saw it in the cinema, because it got very bad reviews, mm. I think it really upset Hitchcock. Both of them mm. quite well-known films now, as even to this day they've lasted, but particularly Peeping Tom, of course. But they were panned by the critics. But I think that um, Frenzy is much better on television. Mm. It's a small-screen film, funnily enough. It's a little dated, but it comes over as a period piece more, you know, on, on television. I couldn't remember until recently I'd seen it that you died and there you were in the orange dress and yes. all of a sudden you'd gone. Yes, I'd gone. <laughs> in a potato sack. Yes. That's when I went out for the interview with, with, with Hitchcock. He kept on asking about my height and, and I, I thought, it's very odd. And then he, he talked about the body in a potato sack and I thought well, it's a very odd a secretary body in a potato sack no it's not so odd it's a Hitchcock film anyway I took my shoes off because I thought he wanted me to be short for some unknown reason he gave me that impression and I got to the door when, I, when he said goodbye I was in there for ages it was sort of 45 minutes or something and I got to the door and I looked down and my I was in bare feet I had to go back and get my shoes there was nothing for it but to go back he, he was charming he made no illusion about my act and I know um, there was a nude scene, but I know it wasn't you, was it? Wasn't it wasn't me, no. no. It, was, it was some very, very beautiful model. And it was only the back of me yes. going out of bed and going off into the bathroom or something. But I got a letter from my father um, <laughs> about sort of when, when the film came out, and he said, I think it's absolutely dreadful to pay, play in films like this. And I didn't even reply because I thought, I haven't seen him for 35 years very often. He's taken no interest in my education. And I don't think it was a terrible film to be involved in. It was directed by a legend and it's still being shown in the movie houses. Mm. So I think I was proven right. <laughs> you did do a nude scene a bit later in another movie, I think. Well, I you? did a nude scene, I must say, I didn't enjoy it, but it had to be because it was Gwen John the painter. Mm. And Gwen John, of course, was Rodin's nude model. She was the famous model for the great pose. Yes. So um, I had to do it because it was part of our job. I mean, it wasn't there for any... any uh, any other reasons and also you know that even going back to the Hitchcock one it was done most tastefully mm. it wasn't anything I mean it, it was rather ahead of its time actually because we were still not far away from you know Claudette Colbert and Cary Grant very very clothed and always sleeping in separate beds yes always struck one as being quite funny later on but but very very you see I think very romantic I think much more romantic than all this flailing about that we get now mm. it can be rather boring Gua Taylor's actually just moved back to the Isle of Wight. He lived there for a while. Really? But he's just moved back, yes. Really? He was, he was the cinematographer on, on the Frenzy, wasn't he? He I think? certainly was, mm. yes. Yes, he, he, he was very, 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 very tall. I remember Gil, very quiet. And he went on to Star Wars, of course, didn't he? Oh, did he? Mm. He did all that. Well, he did some of the early ones, That's yeah. probably why he moved out to be nearer, because they were, took years and years to film, didn't they? Yes, they yeah. did, yeah. One of my favourite series of yours, actually... Um, was the mayor of Casterbridge when you uh, were sort Alan of Bates. You, you were the <laughs> the unexpected lady from the Channel Islands? Yes, yes. Lucetta yes. Temple. Yes, with all my Jersey royals. <laughs> yes, it's a very juicy part. That I loved that. I loved acting with Alan. He was he was such a generous actor. You know, he always cared that his fellow players were happy, and um, he was a very concerned and courteous person. I was very, very fond of him. And, of course, he died far too young. Mm. 
Thomas Hardy stories are fantastic, aren't they, really? Don't yes. you think? Yes, yes. I think that's a particularly wonderful one, actually. Mm. I'm Penella Fielding, and whenever I can, I listen to John Hannah Meets. <laughs> Coming towards the end of an interview in Salisbury, actually, with Anna Massey, who's got an exciting new book called Telling Some Tales. We've told a few tales today that are in the book, but there's lots and lots more. And uh, I saw you on TV the other morning, and I got the impression that hadn't had an idea to write a book and all of a sudden you did really well when i was 20 i was asked to write or maybe when i was 20 in my 20s i was asked to write an autobiography twice in fact and um offered an enormous advance i have to tell you for those days and i i even that didn't lure me because i thought i don't know who i am i don't know where i'm going i'm in such a muddle i don't know where to begin I, you know i could only really write a thank you letter an ott thank you letter on a postcard <laughs> which actually remained the case until about Three years ago, my, my husband, when I said I was going to write a book, he said, but you only write thank you letters. <laughs> and I thought, well, he's right. But I sort of got more confidence. And I did an interview in a paper in which I told an anecdote about my father and um, about my father who had a terrible stammer. It was a, quite a, a poignant scene, really. And um, my chum, David Hare, read this interview and he said, it's such an interesting story. And I thought to myself, well, I've got many more that I think are probably more interesting than that, actually. So I said, be brave and go for it. So I, Alan Rickman put me in touch with, well, he, he actually asked Gail Reebuck, who set me up with Paul Sidey. And the same afternoon that I had lunch with Paul Sidey, I wrote the first three pages because I thought, if I don't start now, I never will. <laughs> and I'd only just bought a computer about four months before, so I was still doing it on two fingers. <laughs> I'd now... I'd now taught myself more or less to do it on all the fingers. I make a lot of mistakes, but you can delete quickly. Anyway, um, I, I wasn't daunted by the fact that Paul said he wanted 80,000 words, which did seem an awful lot, because when I got to the end of page one, I'd only written about 70. I thought, this is going to take forever. I'm never going to finish. And when I got to about 50,000, I always read everything to my husband, who was absolutely wonderful, very, very critical, and very sort of, you know, uh, really shaped it for me in a sense. And, you know, said either that's too much or give us more here and that sort of thing. But uh, I got to 50,000 words and I said, Uri, that's my husband's name. I said, I, I don't think, I'm never going to be able to write another 30,000 words. He said, calm down. We got, got my post-its out, which were all over the <laughs> desk and everywhere. And he said, well, just write down things that you want to write about. Just keep calm. And he told me some things that had happened, you know. And I thought, I calmed down and then went on for the next 30,000. And I could have gone on, actually. I'm sure you could. But I decided to curtail it. I thought enough is enough. Heidi, hi! Hello, listeners. You are listening to John Hannam Meets. Hotel, would you like? You won a BAFTA for that, I think, didn't I you? I won a BAFTA for Hotel. Yes. Yes, which was really lovely. It was the, the one year when they said nobody must make any speeches at all for thank yous, and I'd had a lovely speech to make, and I wasn't allowed to say <laughs> it. So I just kissed Barry Norman rather embarrassingly. <laughs> It was, an, it was an, an, an honour and something I will never forget, actually. Just come out on DVD as well, which is exciting, I've isn't it? I've been very thrilled to hear that. Mm. I didn't know. You were more involved than just being a star, weren't you? Yes. I, I, a friend of mine told me to read the books of Anita Bruckner because he said uh, the heroine's very much your, your, your style because she's an independent uh, single woman and, you know, the stories are something I think you would like to play. So I read all her books avidly and then a, a producer friend of mine, Super, wanted to work together. So we, she read the books and she was as excited. So we wrote to Anita and said, would you like to write a new script for us, television mm. film? She said, no, I wouldn't, but I've just got a book 
whereby the heroine mercifully was 10 years older because the heroine was in her late 20s in all the other books. The heroines were, and the heroine in, the, in Hotel du Lac, which was the proof copy that she sent us, she was in the, her early 40s, or late 30s anyway. I think I was about six years older, but I pretended. <laughs> and um, we read the book in proof copy. When it won the Booker Prize a few weeks later, we were already casting, and Sue and I had the dinner together in December when we went to a movie to discuss what we were going to do. And we had it in the can ready for showing in the spring in September. It was already, you know, it was already. So it was one of those life's miracles because you couldn't do that now. A, you couldn't do it. I mean, the budget would be too big. We, we were three weeks in Switzerland on Lake Lucerne in Wittsnau. Beautiful spot. And, um, you know, we had a cast made from heaven. Mm. I wasn't paid very much for it, I have to tell you. I'm afraid that was... But anyway, it, <laughs> I, got, I did it, and it was, you know, money isn't everything, but it would have been nice <laughs> to have a bit more. <laughs> and Lady Laura in the palaces, of Lady course. Lady Laura in the palaces, yes. yes. Tragic, tragic figure. Married the wrong man. Yes. Loved another man. Yes. I mean, that is a horrible thing, isn't it? Very much so. Yes. You've done a remarkable array of things. Recently you played Mrs Thatcher, I think, didn't you? I played Mrs Thatcher in, a, in Pinochet in Suburbia, <laughs> yes. with Derek Jacobi. I yes. love doing that. When the director, he took me out to lunch, she's a great friend, I played Agatha Christie, the old Agatha Christie in his film with Olivia Williams, Agatha Christie's 11 Days of Disappearance, you know, when she went to Harrogate and you know, she was in this hotel but nobody knew what happened or why she went. She had sort of some amnesia or something. Anyway, he did a film about this. He said, would you play Agatha Christie? Well, she was a vast woman, so I was padded for that. <laughs> and I was padded for Mrs Thatcher. But you know, they now, they padded me for Mrs Thatcher, but they can also do something digitally. Right. Apparently you're made to look fatter digitally. <laughs> And I loved getting, you know, I once worked with, well, I, my very first job was with the great Celia Johnson, and I once was directed by her, and she said, find your character's walk, and then you found the core of the person. And Mrs Thatcher has such a particular walk. So I hoped that that was part of my entry into portraying. <laughs> and Miss Stanbury, and he knew he was right. That was wonderful, wonderful. What a great series that was. Yes. Mm. And what a wonderful character that is. Yes. And far beyond her time. Yes. To know she's done wrong and say sorry. <laughs> yes. If only the man had known <laughs> that he was wrong and said sorry, we wouldn't have had the tragedy. Uh, and Madame Dupont, was it in Darling Buds of May? Do you remember Mademoiselle that? Dupont, that's yeah, right. Dupont. Yes, Sorry, you say absolutely. it much better than no, me. No, no, I suddenly, I suddenly <laughs> remembered everything was perfect. <laughs> it's been a great thrill to talk to you, Anna. Well, and I love uh, being here. And I know August the 10th, 1988, when you met your current met husband, was a night yes. or a day you'll never forget. And you I, did want to go, did you? I, it was an, one of those very, very hot August nights, and the hostess said, Come very early, like sort of 6 30 or 7. And uh, I went, and I, I thought, I almost rang up and said, I'm too tired. I don't know why I've been working or something. And uh, I went, and we were all having drinks upstairs while she was downstairs. She had a lovely sort of conservatory, a balcony thing upstairs. And in walked this sparkly, grey-haired gentleman in jeans and a blue shirt. And I, he, he didn't know anybody, so I beckoned him over, to because the hostess wasn't there to introduce anybody. And he joined our circle. And as we went downstairs, I thought, I do hope I sit next to him, and I did. And ten weeks later, we were married. And we've been married for, well, I think in, in November, it will be 18 years. Bit like Burton and Taylor, was it? <laughs> it was like Burton and Taylor. It was, but I hadn't broken my hand. <laughs> lots of luck in the future. Thank you very um, much. Lots of luck with the book. Thank and, you. And uh, I'm sure you're going to write another one day. I'm sure you are. Do you think so? Mm. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Good luck. Thank you. It's great 
He's got a swell personality, he meets and greets the stars with such amenity. Good enough to make you coming out of the street, John Hannamay. That's right. Lovely memories there of an interview I did with Anna back in 2006 in Salisbury. Sadly, just five years later, 2011, she passed away. Luckily, there are still so many movies and television shows that we can still see the talents of a lovely lady, Anna Massey. Thank you so much for listening to another Hannah Archive. Bye-bye for now. Sweet man. Oh. Who was he again, dear? John. John. Yes. Yes, John. Just John. Hannah. Was it? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. What does he do? He talks to people like you and me, dear. Oh, I see. Mm. Yes. <laughs>